You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here on a wet and uh, gloomy Saturday morning here in Melbourne. But uh, actually, it's quite nice to have the rain washed down. But of course, we're not in the middle of major floods up as they're, expect, as they're experiencing them up in the north of the country. So uh, we can afford to enjoy the rain. Anyway, uh, after some pretty hot weather. Uh, today on uh, Solidarity Breakfast, we're going to be hearing from the rally that was held outside Gladys Lou's office on uh, Burwood Highway on Tuesday, the 1st of March. It's the... Uh, Anniversary, the first anniversary of the findings of the Royal Commission into the uh, aged care uh, system, and uh, they, uh, the ANMF and uh, supporters, were there to remind uh, Gladys that actually uh, the Liberal federal government really is falling down, and uh, we'll hear some voices from that rally. Uh, we're going to hear from Nick Beans. He's a um, a political economist. Uh, he was speaking on a webinar entitled "Stop the Drive to World War Three. It was spo- it's sponsored by the uh, Committee of the Fourth International and the World Socialist website. And he got, gives a pretty pithy uh, reading of uh, the state of uh, the international economy, <laughs> which I thought was uh, hard-hitting and uh, worth listening to. Uh, we followed that with uh, a, f- um, a look at a fantastic film that's just out called Wash My Soul in the River's Flow. It's a... Uh, a look at a collaboration between Ruby Hunter and Archie Roach with Paul Grabowski and the Australian Art Orchestra. Uh, it was actually uh, the original, the kernel of the film was shot in 2004, but of course it was put together in 2020 and a lot of things had happened since that original uh, shoot and uh, the film has now morphed into something Different. It's become a uh, tribute to the passing of a miraculous spirit, uh, as well as a um, a tribute to the country that uh, uh, Ruby and Archie come from. Uh, there's going to be a special Q and A screening this Saturday today uh, at three fifty p.m. at uh, 
Cinema Nova, and there's going to be a Q&A with the director, Philippa Bateman, and uh, the executive producer, one of the executive producers, singer-songwriter Emma Donovan. Of course, uh, Ruby Hunter was a trailblazer for First Nations uh, people uh, and uh, First Nations women in particular. Uh, so uh, it would be fascinating to hear from Emma Donovan and this is a film you should see on the big screen. So that's at 3.50pm at Cinema Nova. Do yourself a favour. Uh, Kevin is back with This Is The Week That Was and we're going to follow up with Don Sutherland uh, about uh, the Women and Work Report from the ACTU uh, because we're leading into, of course, uh, International Women's Day, uh, International w- Working Women's Day, which is on Tuesday, but uh, of course, a week of different celebrations. This is what 3CR will be doing. Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday, the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture, and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non-conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers, and musicians dismantling the patriarchy, taking collective action and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID-safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on this uh, lovely Saturday morning. Uh, the uh, International Working Women's Day March will be on at 5.30 outside the meeting, 5.30pm at the Treasury Buildings at the top of Collins Street, uh, Tuesday, 8th of March. You can go there with your and share with your compatriots Uh the uh, celebration of uh, women's struggle. Uh, the uh, this is a perfect segue to the uh, rally uh, uh, that the ANMF, the Australian Nursing Midwives Federation, held outside Gladys Lou's office. This was uh, also being um, it was paired with another rally that was being held at another federal. Um, uh, members' uh, offices in New South Wales, and this was uh, around reminding the uh, federal 
uh, Liberal Party that it has responsibility for the aged care sector and that uh, they're actually falling down on the job. Now, the uh, area of aged care uh, is a uh, feminised industry. Uh, There are, of course, male uh, nurses as well as uh, carers, but uh, it's predominantly female. And so, in in actual fact, it uh, is a perfect uh, example of how... uh, Equality in um, work has got a long way to go. But anyway, we'll go down to that rally, which was held outside the uh, um, offices of Gladys Liu, who who apparently was there when they arrived, but uh, then flitted off as fast as her her little feet could carry them, carry her. Uh, I um, was reminded that Gladys Liu was the... uh, uh, representative who was uh, found to have uh, given misleading statements in Chinese to uh, encourage people to vote for her in the last election that had caused so much controversy. So it was quite fitting that uh, she should also be uh, uh, shown to be uh, failing in her uh, representative's uh, role uh, when it comes to aged care, I suppose. Uh, anyway, they're outside uh, the um, offices which are on Burwood Highway, and so here we go. They say on Burwood Highway there are no neutrals here. You either be a union lass or a thug for private aged care. Which side are you on? 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 I'm 3CR, and I was wondering if you would tell me why you've come here today. I've come because I was brought. (laughs) (laughs) Basically because I've worked in aged care for 35 years, and I'm now her full-time carer because I won't put her in a nursing home. Not with what I've seen. I'm from 3CR. Oh. And I was wondering why you were here today. I used to work in disability care and I'm I'm also very familiar with the, the problems in nursing homes and the staff to patient to client ratio is abhorrent. And I also have a background in nursing. So you just cannot do proper care when you have too many, when there's only one of you and, you know, a dozen patients. Also, uh, as a worker, you need uh, colleagues to support you, don't you? Absolutely, yes. And so it was important enough for you to come here? Yes. And support the uh, rally yes absolutely yes because because of poor um, staff to patient ratios people are dying people have been dying through this pandemic and you know in aged care um, you have to have a secure number of staff you know the lives of these grandmothers and grandfathers they're, they're important. Their life is important to their grandkids and their children. And to have that just dismissed because, oh, we need to make a better profit. It's, 
I'm a firm, firm believer in people before your profits. Jess. G'day Jess. Hi. I'm, I'm from uh, 3CR and I was just wondering why you're here and uh, your experiences in aged care. Yeah, so we're here today because, um, you know, aged care, it, it's just awful what's going on. It's been happening for years and... Um, a year on since the um, findings from the Royal Commission were released and nothing's been done. Um, and, you know, aged care workers and residents um, deserve so much more than this. I was thinking, talking to people about how terrible it actually is, how much, how difficult it must be for a person who is a professionally trained person to be left responsible for an, an area that they can't actually apply their professional skills to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you you get into you become a healthcare worker because you want to help people, you know, and and particularly when they need it most, and you're unable to fulfil that inherent role um, because you know staffing shortages are just abysmal. Um, you're working multiple jobs to be able to you know uh, live off, you know provide for your family. And it's also awful, um, you know, working conditions where, which means that residents are missing out on their basic cares, you know, things are being rushed and not done proper, properly. So um, it really does dehumanise it and it means that um, rather than actually providing that holistic care for an individualised care for the residents, it's just more task oriented and you're just trying to, to get through, through your task list. So what they've done is taken away the level of trained professional nurses, registered nurses, uh, to sort of like one in, I don't know, it, it's pretty yeah. outrageous. Yeah, 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 for sure. And that's one of the things that we've seen is, um, you know, uh, they, PCAs um, have, uh, yeah, because uh, registered nurses are more expensive, you know, um, but there's a reason that they're there. They're highly trained and highly qualified. And... Um, you know they're 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 able to um, you know that we're trained to complete thorough um, complex uh, assessments and you know understand when something isn't right and know when to escalate it to you know whether to send the resident to hospital or you know notify the doctor. So um, obviously when you strip an aged care facility of that, um, you know you, you run the risk of um, all of these uh, you know. That a resident deteriorating because you don't have the, the skilled staff on site to be able to recognise and, and escalate it appropriately. And another thing that we have seen as well is um, a lot of PCAs are doing in-house training um, so that they can administer medications. And again, it's something that, um, you know, you some medications, not all of them, but it's again, it's something where, you know, that is traditionally um, a registered nurse's role there's always risks with you know administering medication and and when you don't have that that qualification or that skill or knowledge to apply that to the resident when you're administering medication it means again that there's the risks that come along with that so they're devolving the the employer is devolving the responsibility for any uh, adverse um, situations to those underqualified workers yeah so it's it's about trying to you know, save money. At the end of the day, like, bottom line, that's that's what it's about. Um, and 
it's just appalling because this is this is a human right. Everyone should have access to uh, healthcare, um, and and you know the elderly or um, should not be um, you know exempt from that. Now I know you guys are all out here today, and that's a show of strength, and it's important. Mm -hmm. How important is the union? Because do you have any potential? Uh, uh, conversations with your employers that it actually are fruitful other than with the union? Yes, yeah, so it's it's incredibly important particularly in aged care because um, you know you find that um, there's so many different employers um, often um, you know the, the staff will not be aware of their their basic rights up, um, you know, as an employee, um, and it's it's so important to have the union on your side to to also hold the employer accountable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What are you hoping to achieve? Well, I just really hope that um, you know that the federal government um, or um, people who are who are enrolled to vote in the upcoming federal election take this serious, and um, you know. Why would we risk having the coalition government in power again when they've already had 12 months um, to implement the recommendations from the Aged Care Royal Commission and they haven't done that? I, I just think we need something done now. A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, Millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let-it-rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in Parliament and on the streets, and all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win. Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, in to continue the uh, discussion from a revolutionary point of view, uh, we're going to move on to Nick Beams. He's a political economist. He was speaking on a webinar entitled Stop the Drive to World War Three," which, of course, is what's going on with uh, the Ukraine debacle. And uh, it, this particular event was sponsored by the Committee of... Uh, the Fourth International and the World Socialist website, who have been uh, covering all aspects of this particular issue, um, you can catch the uh, entire webinar. I'm, I assume on the uh, um, socialist or World Socialist website. But this little section was uh, a fantastic encapsulation of what's going on in uh, the economy, the world economy. And uh, so let's hear from Nick Beams. And our next speaker to make some introductory remarks will be Nick Beams. Nick is a member of the International Editorial Board of the World Socialist website. 
He is an authority on Marx's political economy and has played a leading role in the Trotskyist movement for five decades. He will be speaking tonight on the economic crisis underpinning the war drive. Thank you, Tom, and uh, welcome to all our viewers and listeners around the world. Uh, Leon Trotsky once wrote that when a serious change takes place in the situation, a sharp turn, it is necessary to probe analytically more deeply to determine the qualitative aspect and, if possible, also to measure quantitatively the impulse of economics on politics. I want to place my remarks within this framework to lay bare the economic forces behind the war crisis and how the working class must respond to it. The International Committee of the Fourth International and the World Socialist website have continually pointed to the essential driving force of the wars waged by US imperialism over the past 30 years. It is the striving of the US to counter its long-term economic decline through military means. The events of the past two years and those of the past months and days point to the fact that the economic crisis is reaching a qualitative turning point. There are immediate expressions of this. Last month, the US Treasury announced that government debt had topped $30 trillion. That is, it was now $7 trillion more than the entire economic output of the US economy in a year. Corporate debt, very often financed through risky operations, is now more than $10 trillion. Recalling the old saying that those whom the gods would destroy, they must first make mad, the financial system has become ever more bizarre. The cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, rises and falls by thousands of dollars, sometimes in a single day. So-called meme stocks, representing little intrinsic value, are propelled into the stratosphere only to come crashing down. Tech companies, which have yet to turn a profit, see their shares skyrocket, often recording market valuations exceeding those of established com companies many times over. And one could go on. Let me trace out how this crisis has developed historically. Its starting point can be readily identified. On August 15, 1971, faced with a mounting balance of trade and payments problems, President Nixon removed the gold backing from the US dollar, ending the post-war monetary system, which the US itself had established at the Bret Bretton Woods Conference of 1944. That conference and the agreement was part of US efforts to reconstruct world capitalism out of the ashes of World War I and World War II. Its demise at the hands of the US itself signified the onset of its economic decline. As a result of the turbulence that followed, marked by inflation and the deep recessions of the 1970s and 1980s, a restructuring of US and, and world capitalism took place. It had two interconnected components. First, the globalization of production, starting in the 1980s, as capital used technologies based on the microchip to reorganize production to exploit cheaper sources of labor. 
This had profound consequences. It has intensified to an enormous degree one of the central contradictions of the capitalist system identified by the Marxist movement with the outbreak of World War I, that between the global development of the productive forces and the division of the world into rival and conflicting nation states and imperialist powers. The second consequence was the rise of so-called financial engineering, speculation on the financial markets, asset stripping, often involving outright criminal activities as increasingly the chief means for profit accumulation. Karl Marx long ago pointed out that since the aim and driving force of capitalism was not the production of material goods and services needed for the maintenance of society, but the transformation of money into still more money, attempts would be made to do this without the inconvenience of the production process. That was still only an episodic tendency in his day. But by the 1980s, as the crisis of American capitalism deepened, it was becoming the dominant mode of profit accumulation. However, the process did not proceed smoothly. On the 19th of October, 1987, Wall Street crashed. The Dow recorded a 50% drop, still the largest ever single day fall, the result of an orgy of speculation. The, U the market crash resulted in a turning point in the administration of monetary policy by the US Federal Reserve. In a one-line statement, the newly installed Fed chair, Alan Greenspan, said all the resources of the Fed would be made available to support the financial system. This was the start of a new program. The task of the Fed was not to prevent the formation of speculative bubbles, but to clean up the mess when they burst and pour in more money via lower interest rates to finance a new round of speculation. This process continued through the 1990s and into the present century amid a series of financial storms. These included the bond crisis of 1994, the Asian financial crisis of 1997-98, the collapse of the hedge fund long-term capital management in 1998 because of speculation in the Russian ruble, and the tech wreck of 2000-2001. Then came the financial crisis of 2008, the result of the speculation that had preceded it. The crisis in the subprime mortgage market was the trigger, but the practices in that area were so widespread, they threatened to bring down the entire US and global financial system. Interest rate cuts were no longer sufficient. A new policy was embarked on, quantitative easing. It involved the purchase of treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities by the Fed, coupled with a government bailout of the corporations and banks running into many hundreds of billions of dollars. Quantitative easing was designated as an emergency measure to be withdrawn as soon as conditions returned to normal. That day never came. The financial system had become so addicted to and so dependent on the cheap money provided by the Fed that the halting of its flow threatened another crisis. 
Over the first phase of quantitative easing, the Fed expanded its balance sheet, its holdings of assets from around 800 billion to 4 trillion. In 2018, under conditions of a limited upturn in the global economy after the disaster of 2008, the Fed did attempt to return to a more normal policy, initiating a series of interest rate increases and a reduction in its asset holdings at the rate of $50 billion a month. The market rapidly delivered its verdict. In 2018, it recorded the biggest December drop since December 1931 in the depths of the Great Depression. The Fed, now under the chairmanship of Jerome Powell, beat a hasty retreat. In January 2019, he declared the, that interest rate rises were off the table and asset reduction had been halted. In July of that year, when the economy was growing, the Fed started to cut interest rates. So when the COVID-19 pandemic struck in February, March 2020, it impacted on a financial system that was already highly unstable. It acted as a trigger event, setting in motion a crisis potentially even more significant than that of 2008. Amid wildcat strikes and demands for safety measures to deal with the pandemic, the great fear on Wall Street was that such action would lead to a crisis. It would cut off the flow of surplus value from the working class, the basis of all profit in the final analysis, and collapse the debt mountain. The March 2020 crisis went far beyond the stock market, which fell dramatically despite of a series of emergency measures by the Fed. The crisis struck at the very core of the US and global financial system, the $22 trillion market for Treasury bonds. In times of turmoil, Treasury bonds are seen as a safe haven and they are bought up. But the market flipped. Treasury bonds were now being sold off in a dash for cash. At one point, in some segments of the market, there were no buyers for US government debt. No one wanted to buy what was supposedly the safest financial asset in the world. The US Treasury market had frozen. Nothing like it had ever been seen before. The Fed, together with the Trump administration, undertook a massive intervention. The government handed out hundreds of billions of dollars to the corporations under the CARES Act. The Fed stepped forward as the backstop for all areas of the financial system. It bought federal debt, mortgage debt, municipal debt, consumer debt, student debt, credit card debt, short-term commercial debt, and even stocks. As a result of the Fed's intervention in March, which saw it spending at one point $1 million a second, and the ongoing support over the past two years, the Fed's balance sheet has expanded from $4 trillion to almost $9 trillion. Once the market had been stabilised, the mantra of the ruling classes became the cure cannot be worse than the disease. That is, no effective measures would be taken to deal with the pandemic because this would produce a crisis on Wall Street. The massive intervention has seen 
a rise of the market to record heights and the accumulation of untold wealth by the pandemic billionaires while millions of people around the world have needlessly died. There have been various reports on the March 2020 crisis. They point out that while the Fed's action stopped an immediate collapse, they note that all the underlying structures that produced that crisis remain. Now another turning point has been reached. As a result of the crisis in the real economy, resulting from the refusal of governments to deal with the pandemic and the massive injection of still more money into the financial system, inflation is ripping through every country. The demand for effective action to combat it is not due to inflation as such, but because the ruling classes know from long experience that inflation drives the class struggle as workers seek to regain the losses in their living standards. But action to halt inflation through the lifting of interest rates threatens to bring down the financial house of cards. So what is our prognosis? It is grounded on the nature of finance capital itself. It's inherently predatory character. Creating no real wealth itself, it seeks a resolution of its crisis through war and plunder on the one hand, and an assault against the working class to put value back into its financial holdings on the other. In 2016, the International Committee of the Fourth International laid out the essential issue. Imperialism seeks to save the capitalist order through war. The working class seeks to resolve the global crisis through social revolution. That is the perspective which must be acted on. The events of the past few days make clear there is no time to lose. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, coming to the end of Transitions Film Festival, but go online and you'll see a a wonderful array of films that you can dip into. Uh, You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, as for uh, the uh, pessimism that we've just been experiencing, what a fantastic encapsulation of the uh, economic order. I just couldn't go past it. Nick Beams, a political economist who was speaking on a webinar entitled Stop the Drive to World War III, and it was sponsored by the Committee of the uh, Fourth International and the uh, World Socialist website. If you go to the World Socialist website, you'll be able to catch up with the rest of the um, discussions that were held in that webinar, which was quite fascinating, I have to say, and was held last uh, Sunday, (coughs) our time, Saturday, their time. And there were talks from people from uh, different parts of the uh, the globe as well, which is fascinating. Uh, tidbits like uh, in Germany, for example, 
they're now uh, beefing up their uh, military uh, stance, which is the uh, first uh, time since the Second World War. So there's quite a lot of things going on uh, as a result of the chess game that's going on in the Ukraine. Uh, another piece of information that came up in another session that I was listening to was that uh, although there's uh, doubt that uh, the Ukraine would actually be part of the uh, European uh, Union, uh, the paperwork is now in for uh, that to happen. So uh, there you go. Uh, the reason for why there's doubt that they would actually be part of the uh, economic union is that it's so impoverished. <laughs> And uh, the uh, economic, uh, the European Union doesn't want to carry another impoverished uh, nation on its back. That's the, uh, the theory, anyway. Well, now we're going to move on to uh, a more positive uh, frame. Uh, we're going to be listening to a conversation I had with di- film director Philippa Bateman uh, about this fantastic film called uh, Wash My Soul in the River's Flow. Um, I'll leave her to describe uh what it's about, just to remind you that there's a special Q&A screening this Saturday uh, at 3.50pm at Cinema Nova and there's going to be, um, uh, Philip is going to be there and uh, one of the executive producers, the singer-songwriter Emma Donovan and uh, just as a um, note, it appears that that's going to be an ongoing thing at the Cinema Nova, worthwhile looking up. Uh, special Q&A screenings of films with uh, directors uh, going to and actors etc going to be uh, on hand for you to have a hear the uh, chat that they have so uh, for example um, Lovelands is uh, going to be um, screened in a I'm not sure either but 17th it's 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 coming out on the 17th but uh uh, it's uh, going to have a special Q&A, which is, uh, was following up. But anyway, uh, let's have a listen to uh, what uh, Philippa had to say. Well, um, Wash My Soul in the River's Flow is a beautiful and very emotional film. Uh, how did you get involved in making it? In 2004, I was running a production company and... My friend Patrick Nolan, who was the concert director who you see in the film, um, approached me and said, look, I'm working on a very special project and I think we should document it and would you be interested in filming it? Um, And that's how I got involved. And at the time, back in 2004, we were going to make a documentary, which was a very different documentary, which is what has ultimately been made because we're going to follow them on tour and into the communities, but that didn't really happen. There was another, there were two other shows. One was in Adelaide and the other one was in, um, after it opened at Melbourne International Arts Festival. Um, and and we're talking Hall. about Ruby Hunter and Archie Roach right. collaboration yeah. with Paul Grabowski. Paul Grabowski and the Australian Art Orchestra. Yeah, that's right. And you know that that's how I got involved. And the the footage sat in my closet for about seventeen years. So it was it. I always intended to make the film, but it took it took a while. And of course, you know, people go off and do different things and things happen and films are difficult to finance and but finally in 2020 it all came together which was very exciting 
And it obviously, as you said, it's a different kind of film because the previous film would have been documenting a, a, a musical collaboration, effectively. But now it's really a tribute, isn't it? It is. Look, it's a different, it's a very different style of documentary in the sense that, I mean, look, we hadn't really thought it through when we filmed it. We just thought at the time it was important to document. But you're right, it would have been a more of a sort of, it would have been more about the collaboration between First Nations artists and non-Indigenous artists. Um, and of course, at the time that the concert was put on and created, the federal government hadn't apologised for stolen generations. So it had a different, you know, it had a different context. It had a different social context. Um, in, you know, all these years later, I think it's, it is a tribute, but what it really is, it's a love story. And it's a love story that's about the love story between Archie and Ruby. Um, the love story that's about music that's shared by Paul Grabowski, the Australian Art Orchestra, and Archie and Ruby. And it's a love story about country. And really, what I want to do was to make the film cinematic and... I think that we um, obviously consulted with um, Ruby Hunter's brothers, uh, Eric Richards and Jeff Hunter, her remaining siblings, who took me on to Nurundjeri country and we filmed this absolutely extraordinary, mind-blowing landscape. <laughs> um, and it's not, it's not sort of insert the country as it's cut together with the footage and the interviews is sort of in flow. So that it, it it feels less like a documentary, really. I mean, I tend to think of it as a feature film. It's about music, but it's a concert film and it's a love story. Yeah, it, 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 that actually gets to the next bit. It's actually the making of the film that seems so extraordinary to me. I mean, it's the content, of course, because it is a love story. But it's the strands that you've brought together. And I will, well, first start, there must have been collaboration uh, artistically, in a sense, and emotionally and uh, sensorily with uh, the First Nations actors, surely? Yes. I mean, of course. I mean, it's about them. The film is from their point of view. Um, Archie is a producer on the project, and he's a producer in the sense that he's not a filmmaker, but he is the custodian of his own stories. And Ruby Hunter's, because Ruby Hunter passed in 2010. Um, and everything we did uh, really was in consultation with Archie with and with Ruby Hunter's family. So in that sense, culturally, it was a, you know, it was a collaboration. Um, I am not an Indigenous filmmaker, so I was, you know, sensitive and very aware that I wasn't and that I had to reach out and have a meaningful collaboration. And I think that's what we had, which is wonderful. Um, and I think that there was another collaboration that exists when you make a film, which is with your creative collaborators, your editors, your cinematographers, um, your producers, um, the amazing sound designer who was Sam Petty. So we worked, you know, I, I had amazing First Nations collaborators and equally amazing creative collaborators. Well, it, it is very emotional and it's also very, it's an, a, it's an art piece. I mean, it's a film, it is. but it's, it's an it art is. piece. 
Well, that's where I come from. <laughs> oh, right. As a direct, yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, tell me about that. Um, look, I spent, you know, 25 years in feature film as a creative executive, um, which meant that I worked very closely on script and, and with directors. Um, but the other thing I did was, you know, I come from a visual arts background and, uh, and I mean, I have a degree in philosophy and I always studied film, but I've also, um, been pretty involved in visual arts, both through friends and through collaboration. So I did actually produce, I produced some screen based, um, media artworks, uh, one of which was called Starry, Starry Night, which was The Vivid uh, by an artist, Brad Miller. And then I did another one in 2018, which was about Juanita Nielsen with an um, artist, Danny Bez, which screened at Acme for three months. Um, now, that was as, as a producer, but I, my main interest in film is, uh, you know, uh, has to do with the artist cinema. So, you know, my sensibility is that. That's kind of what I want to make. And so that, that's what I think I brought as a director to the project. Yeah, I think so too. I was fascinated by the level of uh, research you must have done in order to be able to incorporate the stunning pieces of text you used. Yeah, well, the text. I came across was mainly from Archie Roach's memoir, Tell Me Why, which if no one has read, get thee to a bookshop immediately. Um, it's a really, really extraordinary story and it's Archie's memoir. And I was very conscious of the fact working with First Nations artists and not being First Nations myself that I didn't want to impose words onto their experience. And even though the songs are very much about, and the concert is about spoken word, and they talk about their songs before they sing them, um, and there's short interviews that happen within the songs about the songs and, their, and what they mean, um, there were still gaps. And in terms of the narrative, I wanted to create a narrative that was organic, but also was in Archie's and Ruby's words. So I was very economic in the way I think I used those the lines in the text from Archie's book because it's a big book um, and also the lines that I've, I used of Ruby's and that was really about making sure that their voice was still in the text and it was from their point of view. So, yeah. Yeah, the film is con uh, cross-contextual in a sense. Yes, it is. It is. It's multi-layered in the sense that I was aware that I was working with archive. I mean, it was odd to me to call it archive because I just saw it as a continuum in a way. And in fact, what I wanted to do was to bring together that concert. But that concert was also very much about their memories because it was about their past and their present. So I wanted to bring together the idea of past and present and memory and country and what they sang about. I wanted it to be in a sort of single continuum but I was also aware that it's quite difficult to do that and hold an audience's attention and that the multi-layering as an approach was also, you know, it. I wanted it to flow, but, you know, we have Super 8, we have 4K HD, we have, 
um, you know, digital beta cam, which has been technolo- you know, technologically renovated in a sense to bring it up to, to standard. Um, we've got still photographs. We've got quite experimental images, which is the paint and the ink in the tanks behind intertitles. Um, and I worked with a designer I've worked for for 15 or 20 years on the intertitles. So, you know, all of those things were um, approached with, it was it was textural and it was multi-layered and that seemed to me appropriate creatively. And it's a rhythm. So is that how you, yes. you uh, uh, visualised it or uh, dramatised it? Yes, it was all about flow. <laughs> so it's called Wash My Song, The River's Flow, and that's the title of one of Archie's songs, and it's the last song in the film. And it's almost a gospel-inspired song, and it's very upbeat, but it's very spiritual and kind of brings everything together. But it was... Paul Grabowski said something, and it's in the film, where he talks about how when Archie sings in particular there is this flow from song to song and it's quite riverine. And I thought that's a good principle in terms of the edit and the rhythm, that it had to flow, that I didn't want to take the audience out of that flow. So it was very much about you draw people in and then you take them on a journey and you deliver them somewhere, but it flows. It's not jerking them out with talking heads and cutting into songs like you actually with each song it plays out so we have like the whole songs we've got 10 whole songs there were 14 in the concert but that was too long for the film yes. and also the, the concert order of the songs is not the the film's order of songs yeah yeah it was quite clear that uh, each of the elements that you use uh and it was about focus. That was the bit I was going to get to. Um, you as the filmmaker and the people who were working with you, uh, maintaining focus on so many potential avenues you, you could have gone down. That's really, you know, it's a very, it's very perceptible. <laughs> uh, in the sense that, I mean, what, what happened was, I mean, as with every filmmaker who has footage and is reinventing something, you know, there's a number, if, if the material is rich, and this was very rich, I could have made three or four different films that were very different. I mean, really quite different. And I had to, I mean, I think that's the director's job, really. You decide what, what, what stays and what goes. And there was a lot, you know, it, it, it's, it's taking things out so that you create a clarity. Well, someone said killing your babies, killing your babies. Yeah, and look, I, it, you know, there was, there are things that still pain me. I mean, I could have made a whole film about Ruby and her relationship with memory and clothes, which I was fascinated by. Um, I love clothes, and Ruby loves clothes, and she talks about, you know, there was there was a whole theme, and I had to, you know, I had to take it out really. I mean, there's remnants of it in the film, but which was Ruby talking, describing what she was wearing at key moments in her life. But it just interrupted the, the, the greater story. Um, so it's about not getting bogged down in those details. And but the problem is they're great details and they're fascinating. And 
you know, there's things that there's particular moments in the rehearsal room that I, which was interactions between Paul and Archie, Archie and Ruby and the musicians that were wonderful. And, you know, I had great stuff with the musicians talking about what it meant to them to work with Archie and Ruby. But, you know, it, it's a different film. <laughs> so I just had to, I had to be brutal. I mean, and that's, I think that's your job. Um, creatively brutal to to produce something that that is satisfying and the thing is when you overload I mean quite often I see things and I think oh that is way overloaded you, you're sort of jangled by the information and I that was the other I mean I, I was quite I mean funny in a way because I made an old-fashioned film in the sense that I made it for the cinema you know it's not it's a film that when you see it on a small screen, it reads very differently because it's an immersive experience um, and you're in the dark and it's the music and it builds. So, you know, I really hope people get to see it in the cinema because I made it to the cinema, um, you know, but I'm also aware that, you know, in reality, most people will probably end up seeing it on a television screen. <laughs> I, um, I agree with you. Uh, I finished the film. It is a build, and I finished the film feeling quite emotional, actually. Yeah, 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 it does. I mean, it's funny because I've seen it, you know, 700 times. But last night we had a screening in Hobart in Tasmania, a special screening uh, event, and I was in the audience and I felt really emotional. But I, I felt emotional because... When it, it was a very good cinema, the sound was great. I was in the dark. The screen was great, and I was able to sort of let go of so many other things and just um, and actually feel what it was to lose Ruby mm. and what that love story was mm. and. And, and the pain. And also, I mean, I think that, that it was one of the reasons I really want to make the film. People are very moved by their humanity and their generosity of spirit. And it's very moving. It's, and I think that that's what a lot of people feel emotional about, that it's quite rare in this world to see people who've suffered and been denied so much and to make something very be beautiful of their lives and to not have bitterness or any kind of anger, in fact. And that's that's very profound. And yeah. um, like I think that's, yeah, and I think that's why people, you know, people sort of say, I, I, I don't, I mean, I know why I'm emotional, but I don't really know why I'm emotional. And I, I think that has something to do with it. It stirs something deep in us. G'day, I'm Warwick Thornton, the writer-director of Samson and Delilah, and you're listening to 3CR. This deal really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australian domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples. This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. 
So I think therefore we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. A week solidarity, Bricky team listener, when that epitome of all that is good in the world, the US of the UN of the US of the world, called for evil Russia, all that is evil in the world, to be dragged before the International Criminal Court and charged with war crimes over its invasion of Ukraine. The evil dictator put in the train killers must pay a high price. U.S. of big supremo Joe Biden capital expressed his and therefore the free world's concern, which led naturally, axiomatically, to true blue Aussie calling for evil Russia to be charged with war crimes. Itself perhaps an oxymoron, after all, which bit of war of train killing is not criminal, but nonetheless we asked Joe. Uh, Joe, the U.S. of also kills civilians and destroys infrastructure and continues to slaughter people around the world uh, with drones controlled from the safety of Washington. There is a vast difference between killing civilians and collateral damage. Uh, right, but, but you call for people you don't like to be tried for war crimes, but unilaterally rule that U.S. of train killers and the U.S. of itself cannot be charged with war crimes. Because, as I just told you, collateral damage is not a war crime, and, and we must ensure our brave young men and women in uniform, cream of U.S. of youth, life of the party, fun to be with, love their families, and dear little children, trained killers, do not feel restrained in defending liberty, freedom, and democracy all over the world. And beside, it is wrong to suggest we do not take action and punish people over war crimes. Oh, such as? Well, there's your very own true blue Aussie traitor Julian Assange rotting in a London cell for the most serious, heinous, perfidious crime of exposing our war crimes, which you don't commit. That evil criminal could not differentiate between war crimes and collateral damage. Some people suggest, Joe, and the week that was would never say this, but suggest that as evil as the Russian invasion is, you are attacking it for what the US OB does whenever it wants to, that, that you're being hypocritical. That is an outrageous lie. We have never invaded Ukraine, uh, uh, to my knowledge. I, I'm pretty sure of that. Let, let me check. No, no, it's, it's not in that column. No, no. No, the next one. Look, sorry, I, I haven't got time to go through them all, but, but I'm pretty certain we have never invaded Ukraine, so how could we be hypocritical? Sadly, we were unable to interview our own big supremo, Scuttlebemore Lashson, a.k.a. Scummo, as he succumbed to the COVID virus, leading to lots and lots and lots of thoughts and prayers. But we're fortunate enough to catch up with the next best thing, the Minister for Being Offensive and Trained Killing, Constable Peter Duffer. Uh, so evil Russia must be charged with war crimes, Pete. Like, you know, like, yes. Uh, on what grounds? 
because like the US of like said so. Uh, there have been inquiries into war crimes by True Blue Aussie train killers, which revealed horrific crimes by the cream of True Blue Aussie youth, young men and women in uniform, uh, arising out of that. How many train killers have been charged with those crimes? So far, the number of, you know, alike train killers charged stands at, like, naught. Naught? Uh, but, like, you know, I am seriously considering laying charges against, like, you know, the biased judge who said they had committed, you know, war crimes. Right, but, but in a prominent court case this week, a cream of trained killers trained killer was advised not to answer a question because it might incriminate trained killers. And thankfully, that sensible, like, you know, warning has prevented charges being laid against these truly great, you know, like, true blue Aussies. Look, the real war criminal, along with evil Russia, is evil China for, you know, like, not supporting us. Oh, well, thank you, Pete. You know, like, pleasure. So far, Lord Rupert of Wapping and his Wapping Sin haven't come up with the proof that that international villain, state big supremo, the pejorative Dan, is responsible for the Ukraine invasion, although it's only a matter of time. But we did seek the usual objective facts from the Wapping Sin. Um, you have been giving mass coverage to anti-war protests here and around the world. Certainly. These people who love liberty, freedom and democracy expose the illegality and war crimes of evil Russia. Uh, yes, yes, good point. But, but I can recall joining hundreds of thousands of protesters on the eve of True Blue Aussie invading Iraq on the coattails of the US of. Yet in your blanket coverage supporting the invasion, hundreds of thousands of protesters right here in Melbourne, not a line, not a word. That was a responsible response to deprive of oxygen a small number of anti-Trublawazi supporters of terrorism to prevent them brainwashing the Trublawazi people, a terrorism that the US of had irrefutably proved was brimming with weapons of mass destruction, armed with nuclear weapons, planning to invade the whole liberty, freedom and democracy world. Except, as the hundreds of thousands of protesters here and around the world correctly argued, that irrefutable proof was 100% wrong. A, a US of concoction, a coalition of the killing concoction to justify invasion and slaughter. Yeah, apart from that, before being laid low, Scomo pleaded with banks and insurance companies to deal with flood victims fairly. Please, please. And as usual, that should work a treat. Those in the eye of the storm said it was a one-in-a-thousand-year event. It's the same as the one-in-a-thousand-year event we had two years ago, and just like the one-in-a-thousand-year event we had the year before that, they said, confirming Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist's assertion, with his usual impeccable logic, that the deluge proves there is no such thing as climate change. <clears throat> and attacking the warmest was suggesting there was some connection. Against this bolt through the head Lord Rupert of Wapping logic, it's hard to comprehend why all those climate scientists around the world persist with such warmest nonsense. Still persisting with rubbish this week, like the hottest years in history have occurred in the past decade. 
how elitist, how immoral. Which brings us to Rajiv Jain, real name, co-founder and chief investment officer of a, of a responsible investment mob called GQG Partners Global Equity Fund, who told a portfolio investment forum, attacks on fossils are elitist and immoral. I think it's immoral not to invest in fossil energy unless you're willing to live by candlelight and walk instead of drive. The whole argument of reducing supply of fossil fuels can be quite elitist because, Rajiv pointed out sensibly, the world needs cheap energy. Can we suggest Rajiv confine his portfolio to very short-term investments? Wonder if Scummo's lying there in his sickbed hugging his lump of beautiful, there's nothing to be afraid of, coal. The man who wants his job, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony Albinguzi, whom Scummo last week described as the most left-wing Socialist Party leader in 50 years, told the true blue Aussie capitalist review he is for renewal, not revolution. <laughs> Gee, there's a bolt from the blue. And I'm courting the big end of town obviously paying to fool them into thinking he's on their side while he devotes his life to destroying capitalism. Actually, renewal, not revolution, shades of Rosa Luxemburg's reform not, Rosa bleed, and courting the big end of town, if he is the most left-wing, imagine what he'd be like if he was right-wing. Anthony, we asked, the government says it will, and I agree, the Socialist Party agrees 100%. No, no, 101%. Uh, but I haven't told you what they're going to do. And we might even agree 102%. Notice the Minister for Sports Rights, Bridget McConzie, is responsible for handing out assistance to flood victims. So if you're a flood victim, let's hope you live in a government or marginal seat. Back to the warmest lie that is climate change. Have you noticed that in the past couple of weeks, the ubiquitous ads for Clive Parmagena's idiot party have not mentioned their dynamic fossil-loving leader, Craig Killy the Planet, once? Don't tell me their polling shows Craig is not exactly a huge asset in the vote-catching electoral stakes. Unlike that vote magnet, Matthew, I'm your guy, who hopes to run our state with the same thoroughness with which he runs his office. Like, obviously, the thorough background check on the new media advisor who started work last week, a former age journo. Just a pity they then uncovered tweets from 2014-15 like, another liberal thinks Facebook is a sewer to spew homophobic and sexist tirades. It's time for Labor and Dan Andrews, and an attack on Paul Lobster with a mobster Matthew himself. See, thorough background check. This week, her position is again vacant, and he wants to run the state. There was some good news this week, as we recall those commissions and inquiries into the Crook Casino and the role all those directors played in a little bit of money laundering and problem gambling and a litany of criminal activity, which it now turns out was not criminal activity after all, as the corporate watchdog informed all those directors this week no charges would be laid and they could go on with their corporate lives. Innocent, innocent men and women. At a 
decision nonetheless attacked by some business academics who said they couldn't understand why what they claimed was criminal activity was not being pursued. That maybe, and this is a ridiculous comment, that maybe there's a law for some, for the filthy rich, for instance, and there's a law for others. <laughs> but the watchdog supremo Joe Longo for profits had a most reasonable explanation, pointing out the crimes were too old. Absolutely. Why, some of them are as far back in criminal history as last year. Sadly, finally, being able to breathe a sigh of relief does not mean these lucky, lucky directors are free from worry, from tossing and turning at night, contemplating one of their deepest concerns as figures show the real value of wages is going backwards. And we all know how that distresses the poor dears who just can't see what some of us think obviously falsely is an obvious solution to that dilemma. Good morning. Good morning. That uh, stuff about uh, Crown is unbelievable, if it wasn't so believable. Uh, you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And before we get on to Don Sutherland, who's going to be having a chat with us about women and work report from the ACTU, uh just uh, to tell you, let you know that there's going to be an anti-war rally next Saturday at t- starting at 12pm on the State Library steps here in Melbourne. There's uh, some happening this weekend in other parts of the country, but uh, Melbourne's going to uh, start its stuff next Saturday. Uh, g'day, Don, how are you? Hello, Annie, and g'day to all your listeners. I hope you're all well and girding the loins for the next... Uh of the various struggles that we're all engaged in. <laughs> That's about it. It feels like there's a big uh, weight on our shoulders at the moment. And it's a very scary situation, of course. Um, we're going to devote most of our time to the issue of uh, uh, equal pay uh, for working women and the impact of that on uh, other women and uh, uh, other people who are dependent upon working women. But just a quick comment to sort of reinforce the uh, anti-war message that uh, uh, Kevin and yourself have been uh, quite correctly pushing forward. Um, I've just been reading of stories that in the US, in the, in the, in England, in the United Kingdom, uh, the British Labor Party has uh, the leadership of the British Labor Party, the dominant right-wing leadership of the British Labor Party, had threatened with expulsion any of its members who appear in anti-war rallies that include criticisms of the USA and NATO. Mm, wow. Uh, and one wonders whether we are going to see that particular development play itself out in Australia. So all all of us need to be on alert to ensure that it does not. Um, it is absolutely essential in my view, that uh, for all of the, the citizens of the region, that the anti-war movement be able to highlight the uh, the lead-up over 20 to 30 years towards this uh, megalomaniacal decision by Putin to invade the Ukraine, that it lies very much as well uh, in the sphere of responsibility of the USA and the major nations, the big nations in NATO that they have pushed the situation to the where it is at the present time as much as Putin's own brand of stupidity is uh, uh, is now uh, bringing it to a tragic situation. 
I'm sure he's not a very good chess player. Uh, it's it's hilarious, but uh, in an awful way that uh, Boris uh, in England was uh, a headline coming out of England was that Boris apparently said that Putin was uh, attacking democracy, and I just thought, oh my goodness, we're yeah. really scraping the bottom of the barrel, aren't we? Yes. Well, <laughs> In Australia itself, there are progressive organisations who quite correctly, of course, are condemning the invasion, as we all should be, but who are staying silent or unable to say anything of any sense about the history that has been driven by the USA and NATO in Western Europe that has pushed the militarisation of countries in Central and heading towards Eastern Europe. And I think that you, you can't understand anything about how to solve this problem unless you take that into account. If you leave out the USA-NATO drive eastwards, then it means that any any agreement that is somewhat of a, pre, a, a peace will be fraught because it doesn't deal with the reality confronting citizens on both sides of the borders. So let's... Anyway, uh, we we uh, can't... I'm only going to alert people to that. I think we yeah, have to, uh, we, we have to move on because yeah. uh, uh, you you wanted particularly to talk about uh, the ACTU's report, uh, Women and Work, and why it's important. Uh, yeah, well, the, um, uh, the the latest report from the ACTU is extremely valuable reading. It's, it's actually... Um, it's not too long for people who are, you know, time-challenged and so on. It's um, focused on how Morrison is missing for working women. That's its headline. But it actually is quite a good summary of the major... Um, it, it drills down into several major issues. And, of course, it's all in the context of uh, International Women's Day uh, coming up next week and all of the uh, commemorations and celebrations and demonstrations that will occur around all of that, despite the attempt to dilute it by the ruling class. The second aspect of the current situation, of course, is the annual wage review, in which uh, closing, the equal, uh, closing the pay gap between the work done by women and men is, is uh, one of the major themes of debate uh, so it's a really good report, I think. Uh, it's available at the ACTU website, and there's a good summary. It highlights seven major problems faced by working women with its damaging flow effects to families and communities in general. And without diminishing those seven major problems, and in the context of the annual wage review, the first two do focus on wages. Firstly, they assert that women on average earn less uh, $483 less per week than a man. Oh, my and God, retire, that's huge. That is huge. And retire with about half the amount of super as a man. The second point they make about the situation is that women are more likely to be in low-wage and insecure work and therefore more likely to have lost work or hours during the pandemic. Then the report highlights the views of working women about the standard of living and the economy. And I won't, I won't go over all of the points, but 
two two of them are particularly important. 77% of women are saying that the cost of living has gotten worse compared to 67% of men. And 55% of women are saying that their job security has gotten worse compared to 45% of men. Mm. There are other important points there that it's worth uh, reading. Um, Then the report puts forward a five-point immediate program that elaborates on that, that includes as the first, as the very first of this five-point immediate program, introducing stronger equal pay laws in the Fair Work Act. And they are a polishing up. This, the detail of that particular uh, preliminary point uh, is a polishing up and, in, uh, and strengthening of what the union movement as a whole was saying about the Fair Work Act prior to the last election with the Change the Rules campaign. Uh, uh, Somewhat confusingly... uh, Sorry, then I'll I'll just add a couple of other general points to make sure that listeners are right on top of it. That demand is very relevant to the annual wage review because how the annual wage review is conducted is defined by the Fair Work Act and then within that framework, as is, is interpreted by the president and the expert panel that actually reviews wages and determines whether and how much there should be an increase in minimum, uh, minimum, the minimum wage and the minimum rates and awards. Now, currently, the Fair Work Act, reinforced by how the Fair Work Commission's expert panel interprets it, does not permit the annual wage review to be used directly to close the gender pay gap. And so the... Say that again. They don't actually see it as being significant. Well, they do see it as being significant, but uh, what they argue, what the Act, what they say that the Act... Is. This is the broken rules. Ah, yeah, 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 right. So yeah, let's write some rules that um, mean that you can't actually deal with the elephant in the room. Yeah, well, yeah, great, great, great con. On. Go on. Yeah, that's sort of what's going on. They're virtually saying that the way in which the, uh, the Act defines how the annual wage review should work means that it cannot directly, directly uh, close the gender pay gap. That's so pathetic. We've got such a pathetic federal government. They are just pathetic people. Well, this Fair Work Act was designed not by this federal government. No, earlier people. But by the Labor government. Great opportunity in 2007-9 when Julia Gillard became the the minister for industrial relations, workplace relations. (sighs) The great opportunity to deal with these issues was not confronted, in part because of difficulties with not having a clean majority in, in, the, in the Senate. But to get back to the report and then where we are now with the annual wage review from the point of view of working women, uh, the, a, the ACTU points out that women are more likely to be reliant on minimum rates of pay and awards. And, the, and I haven't seen the numbers yet, we will see them soon. We will know just how many women uh, relative to men are actually on the national minimum wage. Mm. Now, the ACT points out 
that women are more likely to be reliant on the minimum rates of pay and awards. One of the problems we have is that most activists in our modern union movement have a very poor grasp of what the significance of an award is, and secondly, the content of it and how it relates to enterprise bargaining and so on. Believe we won't develop that any further today. (laughs) That's a a particularly pet hate of yours, isn't it? Yes, it is. We'll talk about it one day. So, now, the ACTU puts forward two demands in in their report. Uh, Stronger equal pay laws in the Fair Work Act so that the Fair Work Commission can proactively tackle gender inequity across all of its functions. And that, okay. of course, includes the annual wage review. And then urgent wage increases to ensure Australia's undervalued w- women workers get fair pay. And a significant increase in award minimum wages to ensure they are living wages. And so that's part of beefing up the understanding of uh, looking at the type of work that people are involved in and uh, making it comparative to uh, well-paid jobs that men dominated. Yes, yes. Now, that is the big problem in the broken rules of the Fair Work Act, including in the interpretation of how the Act should be applied by the Fair Work Commission. Now, astonishingly, in this report, having said that... Just as as a matter of interest, just just as a matter of interest... Do you know the male-female breakdown to the commissioners on in the uh, Fair uh, Work Commission? That's a good question. I, I, I don't. I do not. Yeah, I yeah. That that, that's time. interesting, isn't it? Anyway, go on. Well, the composition of the commission is in the hands of the minister. Uh, oh, yeah, right. And we know about that. People retire or resign. Uh, what this government has been doing was is stacking it with its own yeah. anti-union, anti-worker uh, commissioners. Uh, that's another discussion. That well, that's a disgrace in itself. But yeah. go on, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. Uh, yes. Now, the uh, astonishingly for me, anyway, this report from the ACTU, having said that urgent wage, wage increases are needed. It's silent on the annual wage review, which is now at its midway point. Mm. Now, I don't understand that, and there may be a very... You mean it hasn't heard its master's voice yet? Well, um, it depends how you define the master, and that would be tragic if the ACTU, led by two wonderful women, is sort of defining its, its, um, uh, its activity on that basis. Um, I don't understand why that's the case, because the more education we have about the problems with the annual wage review and how it works, how it should be reformed and so on, the better. But nevertheless, it's silent. Maybe maybe it doesn't think that that mechanism is really very valuable. Well, there's a lot of of truth in that. Um, It's certainly not very valuable if you submit to it. If you challenge it and organise to defeat it, then the terms, the outcomes may be different. We don't know that because it's never been done. Mm, What is true about the ACTU, so despite the fact they're silent in this recent report, they will soon be putting forward their submission 
uh, submissions are, are from all of the different parties, employers, governments, and of course the ACTU and some other organisations like ACOS, they, they are due to put in their submissions or claims, whatever you want to call it, uh, by April the 1st. And then we will know what the ACTU is saying. Its record in terms of what it says in its submissions is very strong. Now, for a start, it is saying that the overall objective of the union movement is to lift the minimum wage to 60% of average uh, of median full-time wages. I haven't got the figures exactly. Off yeah, the top yeah, yeah, right understood, now, yeah. But, that, that's but that's that, the overall objective. So yeah, well, that, that shows you how lagging in, uh, behind uh, the minimum wage is. And when you think about uh, aged care workers calling for a 25% increase in their basic wage. Yes, well, now, now that's done under uh, a very important separate provision of the broken rules of the Fair Work Act. There is no guarantee of success on that front, given the composition of the Commission these days. But it's a very important claim, and there is there is actually a serious campaign being developed by the unions in support of that claim, which is not dealt well with through the annual wage review process, but through the uh, award variation process, which is a separate it's a separate uh, uh, process in the Fair Work Commission and is, uh, has separate um, uh, possibilities and problems in terms of developing a realistic strategy. So the, uh, issue, the issue of equal pay is still uh, a very hot issue? It is, absolutely. And I think, I mean, all of the ACTU submissions, going back, you know, uh, nearly, to, well, 10 years or so, contain terrific information. We need... Our whole movement needs more activists at the delegate and membership level who dedicate themselves to understanding the question of equal pay relative to overall wages struggles. Uh, We don't have enough. And the ACTU submissions and the response... and, and. also the submissions of the major employer groups, particularly the Australian Industry Group, and also the decisions are a pretty good starting point to start learning. So people who are keen on this or need to be or want to be keen on this, it's a really good start because all of the information is available at the Fair Work Commission website and at the ACTU website. It's all there. Uh, and I can send you a set of links if you want to put that up at the web page. Yeah, yeah. So we need those. We need more activists at the delegate and membership level because the, the, the efforts of the bureaucrats in the union movement who run the Fair Work Commission submission are not adequate. They're, they're very good insofar as they go in terms of the research. But consultation and polite submissions and so on and all that sort of stuff, which is required by the broken rules, it ain't enough. Yeah, yeah, you need, you, you need the... Uh, that, would mean, that would mean that all of the efforts of those wonderful women like Zelda Brahano, um, uh, Edna Ryan, Jessie Street, um, Audrey MacDonald, the Union of Australian Women, all 
all of those in our history who have said, well, we're not going to be polite about this. We are going to intervene and organise to bring the women's claims, the specific women's claims, into a more powerful position in the society. And that's what they did. And we are lacking that at the present time, despite the quality of the content of the ACTU submissions. All right. Well, that's a perfect uh, point to finish because I did indeed root out two versions of Don't Be Too Polite Girls, which is what you are effectively telling people that uh, the grassroots needs to stand up. Encouraging that, I totally need it. It's a wonderful song, though. Oh, yeah, no, it's a great song. And thank you very much, Don, for uh, taking some time to have a chat with us today. Looking forward to the next time. All the best to everybody and uh, a happy and struggle filled International Women's Day to all, all women in our movement and beyond. Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday, the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture, and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non conforming presenters, producers, and musicians dismantling the patriarchy, taking collective action, and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID-safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And as I said, we'll go out with Don't Be Too Polite Girls. We would like to take this opportunity of wishing all you women out there a very happy Women's International Day. So we would like to sing you a little tune and we'd like you to sing along with us if you could. Okay. Okay, Sandy. Yep, here we go. Okay. And don't be too polite, girls, don't be too polite. Show a little fight, girls, show a little fight. Don't be fearful of offending in case you get the sack. Just recognise your value and you won't look back. One more time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.